So Trevor has moved us into the long-term care of persons who have spinal cord injury, and I'm going to continue along that line of discussion. Also staying, he's also moved us north into the brain. So I'm going to be talking a lot more about the brain and cognition and the impact of spinal cord injury on cognitive processes. So I'm going to start because I know cognition is not necessarily something that the SCI world focuses on. I'm going to start by defining cognition and talking about the different cognitive domains in how we understand cognition. I guess as a disclosure, I should let you know I've studied cognition since 1999. Um, however, I started my work in multiple sclerosis back then, and then I moved into traumatic brain injury. I added traumatic brain injury to my areas of focus probably about 10 years ago. Spinal cord injury is still very new to me. I've only started working with spinal cord injury about three years ago when, some, when Jill Wacht from the Bronx VA came to me and said, I need help, I want to start looking at cognition in spinal cord injury. And since then, we've worked closely together in doing this work. So I am still new to SEI, um, but it's, a, it's incredible how interested people are in this topic, that cognition does seem to be a very real factor in persons living with SCI. So this is a line of work that we intend to move along and pursue rather vigorously. So after I talk about the cognitive domains, I'm going to talk about SCI and cognitive functioning in SCI and what we've been learning recently. And then I'm going to talk about the potential causes and sources of cognitive deficits in spinal cord injury. And I'll explain why I'm talking about the, the sources of the deficit as we move forward. So first to the, define cognition. Cognition, the official definition of cognition is the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. It encompasses the conscious and the unconscious. It encompasses the concrete and the abstract, the intuitive and the conceptual. So we're talking about a very broad area, an all-encompassing area. So cognition includes concepts of knowledge, attention, memory, judgment and evaluation, reasoning and computation, problem solving and decision making, comprehension and language production. So when you use the term cognition, you're talking about a beast. That term doesn't really mean much because it is so broad and so all-encompassing that we really need to break it down. Cognitive processes all use existing knowledge and they also generate new knowledge. It's an ongoing and a changing process. When we talk about cognition, we're talking about a process. And we rely on cognition every single day of our lives, every minute of our lives. It's central to who we are and what we do with our lives. So just to think about the impact of cognition on daily life, research has shown that cognitive deficits, even mild cognitive deficits, lead to depression and anxiety, they lead to decreased participation in society, they lead to increased unemployment rates, and they lead to a decreased quality of life. That is a huge impact. And when we're talking about cognitive deficits in this realm, we're talking about mild cognitive deficits. So an example is someone newly diagnosed with dementia. When they're in the early stages of dementia, the memory decline has started, and they're aware of it. But it's not that bad yet. They're able to maintain aspects of their life, but they struggle with depression. And that is largely a psychological reaction to the fact that they're starting a decline. And this has a significant impact on their 
ability to look at the world, their ability to function effectively in the world, and their overall quality of life. So cognition is a huge issue, and it's something that we really can't gloss over. When we talk about cognitive deficits, we know that age of onset of the cognitive deficits has a substantial impact in, on what you're doing, although age of onset is not the entire picture. What also matters is how active you are in your daily lives. So we know that cognition has an impact on career product productivity, and in many populations, career development may slow down or even stop due to cognitive deficits. We know that physical as well as cognitive impairments lead to early retirement in a very large part portion of neurologically impaired patients. And patients have identified when they talk about their cognitive problems, the biggest obstacles to maintaining employment are processing deficits and memory deficits. So that's what we often focus on. So what does all this mean? All this means that we must identify cognitive deficits when they present themselves, and we have to figure out how to treat them effectively. We can treat them, but we can do better. And that's largely what our research looks at in the Neuropsychology and Neuroscience Lab at Kessler Foundation. But the first step, we can't rush right to treatment, and I'll show you an example later of why we can't rush right to treatment. The first step is to reliably identify the deficits that a population is experiencing. So when we look at cognition, these are the general domains that we talk about. We talk about attention, working memory, processing speed, visual-spatial processing, long-term memory, and executive functioning. Intelligence is what people commonly talk about. They commonly refer to intelligence. Intelligence is not a cognitive domain in and of itself. It's really a culmination of many of the skills within all of these cognitive domains. So those are the domains that we talk about when we talk more globally. But when we go in and we actually look at cognitive functioning in any given population, those domains have multiple levels within them. And I'm not going to go into detail in the interest of time. But if we just, I'm just going to go through a few of them. We talk about attention. Attention can be simple attention. So listening to numbers being repeated to you and just being able to recognize a number when you're told to. Sustained attention, which is paying attention for a long period of time. Someone may have perfectly intact simple attention, but when you ask them to do that for 20 minutes, those skills are out the window, and they have a lot of trouble. Or you could go into divided attention. You have to pay attention to something, such as your child doing homework, while you're having a phone conversation with your mother. That is a major divided attention task that drives me insane. Then we move on to working memory. So we're getting a little more complicated, right? Attention is a very basic process, and attention is going to feed into everything else. And I'll show you a diagram in a bit to depict that a little bit. But we, when we move into working memory, we, we can break that down into maintenance and manipulation. So maintenance is, if anyone can remember when you had a phone book in one area of the room and then you had a telephone attached to the wall, you looked something up in the phone book, you had to remember that phone number, walk across the room and dial it. That's the maintenance of attention. You have to hold that seven-digit number in your mind while you're walking across the room to dial the phone. That's no longer relevant, but there are other instances where we have to maintain simple attention. Manipulation is a little bit of a complicated construct, and this is best shown by example as well. You're in a store, and you want to buy a shirt, and that shirt is 20% off. You have to, in your mind, 
you have the price of the shirt, you figure out 20%, you subtract the 20% from the price, and you have your final price. If you're really good, you may even add tax to that so you know exactly what you're going to pay. That's all manipulation. Extremely difficult to do, particularly when you're dealing with a cognitive issue that, fo- that is focused in the working memory or attention do- domain. So that's the manipulation of working memory. Then we go into some of the larger constructs like long-term memory and executive functioning. And I say larger simply because they are the more complicated ends of the cognitive processes. These are the higher order cognitive processes. So when we talk about long-term memory, we can break that down into verbal and nonverbal. So words versus pictures. Episodic and procedural. Episodic would be learning verbal information such as words. Procedural would be learning how to ride a bike. Retrospective, memory looking back, versus prospective, encoding new memories and going forward. And then memory can be broken down into its phases, encoding, consolidation, and retrieval. And it's within those phases that we try to identify a deficit that we can later treat. When you look at executive functioning, there are so many components of executive functioning that it's overwhelming. Executive functioning, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, is really what makes us human. It's planning. It's reasoning. It's what distinguishes us from other animals. So fluency, being able to produce words and ideas quickly and fluently. Mental flexibility, being able to switch from one topic to another fluidly without any interruption and being able to maintain those two ongoing processes. Disinhibition, when you're not supposed to do something, not doing it. So it's what your 10-year-old doesn't have, but hopefully by the time they're 17, they do have it. And that is actually when that skill develops. And that's one of the reasons that kids don't drive. Well, one of the good reasons kids don't drive until they're 17 years old. Problem solving. Being able to work through the steps of a problem and effectively solve it so that you have a a usable solution. And then abstract reasoning. So thinking of a dog not as an object with four legs, but as an animal. That's abstract reasoning. You're coming from something very concrete. A dog is something that has four legs and barks to a dog is an animal. And there are other types of animals such as. So that's moving from the concrete to the abstract. An abstract can get very abstract. So this is the diagram I was referring to earlier. If you Google cognition, you will see many, many different diagrams that describe cognition. And this is one that I generated, and I keep changing it. So in another year, I'll have a different diagram. Um, And that's because as our knowledge of cognition advances, the diagrams we use to explain it have to change. So when we talk about attention, that is the most basic cognitive process. And an example of how basic it is is if you have a child that has attention deficit disorder, they may have a memory problem in school. They may not be able to learn information. They're not performing well. But they don't have a memory problem. They can't pay attention. If you fix the attention, you fix the memory. So that is a very basic process we need to pay attention to. Once you move through attention, you can then go into different domains based on the task you're doing and the material you have. So processing speed is simply processing information quickly in a circumscribed period of time. So if you're watching a movie, you have to follow along in that movie. If your processing speed is slow, you may get lost, simply because you you just can't follow along in the movie. You're not processing information quickly enough. Working memory I described earlier Visual-spatial processing is 
understanding an open parenthesis versus a closed parenthesis. That's a very fine distinction that our visual spatial system has to make. If we can't make that distinction, we're going to have trouble reading. And that, so that has a very real functional impact. We talked about executive functionings and functions and the many components of executive functions. And what this diagram shows is that all of these skills feed into executive functions. So if I do an assessment as a neuropsychologist and I see that someone has impairment in their executive functions, perhaps they're problem solving, they may have a specific impairment in problem solving, or they may have an impairment in any of these domains. And it's incumbent upon me as a neuropsychologist to do a broad enough evaluation so that I sample behavior in all of these domains and I can identify where that problem is. And that is doubly true of learning and memory. All of this, including executive functions, feed into learning and memory. Once I identify a learning and memory deficit, I have to figure out if that is a hippocampally-based deficit specifically in learning and memory, or if that learning and memory problem is a result of something going on over here. So let's talk about SDI and cognitive functioning a little bit. We have an ongoing study funded by the New Jersey Commission on Spinal Cord Injury Research that looks specifically at cognition in spinal cord injury. And we have a large sample broken down into by age groups. So these, were, these individuals were specifically recruited based on their injury level and their age groups. So we have a group with tetraplegia, a high power, power group, a low power group, we have older controls, and we have aged match controls. And that was done very specifically because of a hypothesis that our spinal cord injury patients may actually look cognitively more like older controls than younger controls. So what we may be seeing is an advanced form of aging. And that was the running hypothesis, and that's why we recruited these two groups. So if you look at the ages... 38, 39, 34, and the age match are 36, and then we have this older group that's 60 years old. Duration of injury is relatively similar. The low powers have a little lower duration of injury, and education is relatively similar across the groups as well. Looking at the data we're collecting, I'm going to explain these measures a little bit just for those of you who may not be familiar with the terms. The CVLT is, that's the California Verbal Learning Test. That's a test where we read people 16 words, we ask them to repeat the words back. We read it again, they repeat the words back, and we do that five times. Those are the five learning trials. We then do short delay free recalls. So we have an interference list where they get a different list of words. And then we go back and we say, remember that list I read five times? Tell me as many words as you can remember. And then we do a long delay free recall. This is 20 minutes later. When we're doing other tasks, we go back and we say, remember that list I read you a while ago? Tell me as many words as you can remember. In, I want you to first pay attention to the black line. Those are the aged match controls. Okay, So that's a healthy sample right around the age of our spinal cord injury sample. The patterned row are the older controls. So these, have, these folks have a mean of about 60 years old. And then on the right in white, you see the persons who have spinal cord injury. And what we see on the CVLT, this is when they're learning the information, this is when they're retrieving it after a short delay, and this is when they're retrieving it after a long delay. In all cases, the spinal cord injury group is performing significantly below both the age-matched control group and the older control group. 
We also looked at processing speed. The SDMT is a measure of processing speed where someone looks at a, on the top you have a key where there are numbers matched with patterns, and then on the bottom you have just the patterns, and the person has to tell you the number that goes with each pattern. So there's no motor component, they're simply telling you the number that goes with each pattern. And we see a very similar pattern of results. Again, spinal cord injury is over here in white, and we have the older controls and the age match controls And the spinal cord injury group, in this case, the spinal cord injury group looks very much like the older controls. But the significant difference here is with the age match controls. And we do know in the literature that processing speed declines with age. Sadly, that begins at age 30, so I'm sorry. Um, But that is the case. So um, it's mild. Trust me, it's mild. So we know that those with spinal cord injury are showing not only a learning and memory deficit, but they're also showing this deficit in processing speed. So the next thing we did was we looked at our groups by injury level. And what we do see a different pattern when we look at the the injury level. So here you have the age match controls, the older controls, the low powers, the high powers, and the tetras. In each case, the three SCI groups, in this case, this is a CVLT, so this is learning and memory, the three spinal cord injury groups are significantly different, performing significantly poorer than the age match controls. So we're seeing the same pattern, but what's interesting is when we move to processing speed, we only see that significant difference with the tetras. That's not the case in the paras. So the paras are having a learning and memory deficit, not in the presence of a processing speed deficit. The tetras are having a specific processing speed deficit. Now, remember, they also showed a learning and memory deficit. We don't know if they have both deficits or if they have a processing speed deficit that is resulting in a learning and memory deficit. That's a very important question because that drives our treatment. And I'm going to show you an example of that. So we're off to a good start in terms of identifying what the deficit is. We know that there's a learning deficit and a recall deficit, and we know that there's a processing speed deficit, but are there other deficits? The reason we need to answer this question is because when you have a population that has these two deficits, you have to look at the interaction between processing speed and memory. So when information is coming in fast, we can't process all of it. If we can't process all of it, we can't remember all of it. If we have a processing speed deficit and we're treating a learning and memory deficit, we're going to be wasting our resources. And that's an important question that we have to answer in order to appropriately use our resources. This data is in a different population, but it shows the impact. So, whoops, over here on the left side of the screen, you see a processing speed intact group. This group of patients has impaired memory functioning but they have intact processing speed. The blue group received treatment, and they're performing at a higher level. These all, they all start out at the same level. The red line, patients in the red group did not get treatment. So we saw a very nice treatment effect in the group that had intact processing speed. Again, this is on a learning and memory treatment. When we did the same learning and memory treatment, they had the same learning and memory impairment. This group also had a processing speed impairment we saw absolutely no treatment effect. So our treatment was useless to this group of patients. That's why this is so important. That's why we have to do the research to understand exactly what the deficit is 
and then move from there. The source of the deficit is going to dictate where we go. So this is a decision tree that we might come up with, where you have a patient who has a memory impairment. If their processing speed is intact, you go ahead and treat the memory, and you would expect to find a good result. If their processing speed is impaired, you have to treat that processing speed, processing speed deficit first, and then reevaluate them and see if their memory is still impaired. This decision tree was created in the MS population, and we have a modification of it for the traumatic brain injury population. This is where we'll be going in the spinal cord injury population as we continue the research. So let's talk a little bit about the potential sources and the causes of the cognitive deficits in SCI. And I'm going to move through this rather quickly because it is 8.30 already, and I know folks have to get moving. There are two potential sources of these cognitive deficits that we've been talking about. One is cerebrovascular insufficiency. And the second is a concomitant TBI. We know that in a dual diagnosis patient, you have a concomitant TBI, and that's going to impact your functioning. But it is possible that the person may have sustained a milder TBI at the time of injury that just wasn't noticed because there's so much else going on, and it's very easily overlooked. So maybe that happens, and, um, and that's what we're actually treating. So... To examine this question, we have an ongoing study that looks at cerebrovascular testing during cognitive performance, and it also looks at imaging. So we're collecting cerebrovascular data during cognitive performance, and we're also collecting DTI and fMRI during cognitive performance. And that's that's hopefully going to be enlightening us as to the source of the cognitive problem. As of right now, we know that um, in terms of blood pressure, the tetras are the ones that are experiencing the greatest blood pressure reductions compared to the others. We also see a relationship between mean arterial pressure and their performance on the CVLT. So the tetras are showing an in, a, a linear relationship. The older controls, which, for which we have the correlation, is also showing a relationship, but it's in the opposite direction. So that's, we know there's something here but we're still analyzing the data, and at this point, we don't really know exactly what it means, but we know this is specific to the tetras, and we know that the blood pressure is exerting some type of an influence on their cognitive functioning. When we look at velocity, blood flow velocity, we see a similar pattern. This red group up here is our age-matched controls. What's interesting is that our powers look very similar to our age-matched controls, so that's good news. Our tetras are down here they look very similar to our older controls. So it does seem that the cognitive problems that we're seeing in the the population of persons with SCI with tetraplegia look somewhat like an advanced cognitive aging. And that's what we're trying to weed out right now. We're trying to figure out when, remember, these patients are all young, so our SCI patients are all young. When we follow them, what happens? That's the question that we have now. So that, and that's data that we're continuing to collect. When we look at this relationship between blood flow velocity and the CVLT, we see a pretty nice linear relationship between the two. So we see, again, this is, so we see that this is a real relationship that we have to explore further as we collect more data. In our imaging data, we're also seeing results. So on the left side of the screen, this is during a memory task, a learning and memory task, where they're learning a list of words. 
We see increased activation in frontal and parietal areas in the low paras compared to the age match. The red area are areas of more activation and the blue are areas of less activation. In a processing speed task, we see more activation in frontal and motor regions than the age match controls. So it appears that the, the, their performance on this processing speed task requires more resources for the tetraplegics than it does for the age match controls. So we see now that our fMRI findings are corroborating our behavioral findings. So what does all this mean? We move from deficit identification to treatment very quickly. And the reason we do that is because we see patients experiencing these deficits and we want to get the treatments out there. We want to start improving functioning as quickly as possible. So we actually have two ongoing studies already looking at treatment for these deficits. We have data indicating a contribution of cerebrovascular insufficiency to the cognitive deficits. So one hypothesis we have is if we treat the low blood pressure and then we observe cognition, do we see an improvement in cognition? And this is an ongoing study using midodrine. And what we're doing is we're observing effects immediately after drug administration, and then we're putting them on the drug for 30 days and looking at effects after a 30-day trial of the drug to see what happens. In addition, we're just starting a study, this was just funded recently, looking at cognitive rehabilitation in this population for learning and memory deficits and for processing speed deficits. So this is a pretty complicated clinical trial where patients are evaluated and then they're allocated to which type of treatment is most appropriate, and then they're randomized to either a treatment group or a control group. And that's being launched right now. So what we're trying to do is treat for what could be a mild TBI earlier to see if that exerts an influence. With both of these data sets, we'll be taking the data and we'll be looking at them as we're looking at subpopulations within the data to see if we can find consistencies with who benefits from treatment and who doesn't benefit from treatment. Because that's what's going to inform the clinical use of this data um, and the correct clinical prescription of the tools that we're developing. So we have a huge research team that is um, working on the cognition question in SCI. And I want to thank them all. Jill Wecht is really one of the major motivators behind this work, and she's, she, she and I work very closely on all, of this, on all of this work. I also want to thank our funding sources, uh, the Commission on SCI Research, the Craig Nielsen Foundation, the Kessler Foundation, and Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. <laughs>